The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, the Fed's a buyer again. Powell announced plans to expand the bank's balance sheet. But don't you dare go confusing the asset purchases with quantitative easing. And the U.S.-China trade talks were once again front and center with a Chinese delegation in Washington, D.C. Our guests break it down. And if you're here for the craziest things we saw in markets this week, don't worry, we will get to them. Sarah, I'll give you a hint, as as I usually do. All Mine's right. in the collectibles market. So any guesses? Oh, I'm I'm honestly a bit worried that we may have the same craziest thing. But oh, I guess we'll see at the oh end. Oh my God, a jinx. That would be... Yeah, uh, that a would jinx. Be, uh, there are worse things that could happen. There's worse things that could happen. Uh, yeah. And remember that we have our very own Bloomberg podcast hotline. Give us a call. Let us know about the craziest things that you guys have heard or feel free to ask us any questions. That number is 646-324-3490. And we may even play your message on the show. So, Sarah, as you know, I think the podcast works best when everybody agrees with me. It just seems like the right thing to do. This has been the theme over the past two episodes. It seems like it lends more authority to be on the right side of history, that, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But as you informed me, I think our two guests here, there might be a chance we'll get an actual debate on the podcast, which which would be exciting. So um, to me, this is could be the best debate since the is a hot dog a sandwich debate, uh, which has has roiled many cocktail parties I've been at. And I mean, I'll give my opinion. It's clearly not. Oh, wrong. <laughs> wrong you are. You've got bread, you've got meat, you've got a sandwich. Anyway, enough of that. Let's introduce the guests. Our first guest, he's actually our first return guest among uh, non-Bloomberg people, our first two-timer. He's the managing director of global macro strategy at Medley Global Advisors. Uh, Previously, he was chief economist and a portfolio manager at Intellectus Partners, and he spent uh, several years at PIMCO out on the West Coast back in the uh, Bill Gross days. And uh, we're proud to have him back. Ben Emmons, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah and Mike. It's really great to be back. Oh, thanks, Ben. Also joining us, well, this guy's like a three or four timer, but he's a Bloomberg guy, so he doesn't doesn't really count. Uh, he's a cross asset reporter, Luke Kawa. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. It's uh, rough, rough to debate someone with the kung fu background of, of Ben, but uh, hey, we'll we'll see what happens. We'll Lincoln Douglas this up. No uh, violence here. We'll keep it very very G rated. A little violence. Come on, <laughs> a, little, a little violence. Podcasts love the violent debates. <laughs> <laughs> but I, if I remember correctly, the source of this debate stems from the speech that Jerome Powell gave this week in which he basically announced that the Fed was going to begin buying treasury bonds again, especially on the short end, a lot of treasury notes, to sort of manage the yield curve, prevent these inversions in the shooter-ended part of the yield curve that we've seen. So uh, immediately, sorry, I don't know about you, but my Twitter feed erupted into, this is more quantitative easing. And other people saying, no, it's not quantitative easing. Yes. So, uh, Luke, 
why don't you start? Explain to us why you believe this is not quantitative easing. So first, I want to push back on your on your premise. Some of the some of the things you said there in terms of Powell's justification for uh, returning to purchases of not Treasury bonds, but pretty much all bills is the plan, as as far as I can tell. He didn't really mention a desire to steep re-steepen the yield curve. That's something you can read into it if you want to. But he said this is all about maintaining an ample reserve system, focusing more on the liability side of bank balance sheet, making sure reserves are ample. And for me, what this isn't is quantitative easing its quantitative normaling back it's a, an expansion of the balance sheet and the buying of bills in a way that's designed to ensure the adequate transmission of current monetary policy whether or not the fed lowers or raises rates from here would still coincide with balance sheet expansion probably it's not a measure to ad- add additional easing push people out the curve remove duration so you have to move into riskier assets and i think this kind of distinction is useful and worth noting because the intent of monetary policy matters Back in the day, pre-94, I believe it was, you really even didn't get Fed statements to know when rates were moving up or down. You had to discern it but why, by what they were doing in open market operations in excess, essentially, of what you would suspect they'd be doing in order to kind of uh, manage the reserves in the system. That was the signal. So I think signal and intent matter a lot in monetary right. policy right. making. Ding, 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 <laughs> ding. Hey, Luke, you, you're supposed to debate Ben, not me, all right? All right, well, you're you're really the only one saying wrong things so far. <laughs> <laughs> His case coming at you. But I have to say, Ben was pretty rebellious this week because Jerome Powell must have said about five times in his speech, did I mention that this is not QE? And then Ben goes ahead and sends around an email to his clients, and the title of it is, call it a QE comeback. Uh, so, Ben, why don't you give us your take? From your point of view, why can you call it a QE comeback? Yes, I think that, and to, to Luke's point, like, look, let's be fair that you are buying treasury bills and you injecting reserves back in the system. And fair enough, this is what the Fed would do since 1940, 14, sorry. It's the traditional function of the Federal Reserve. But let's think about it this way. Like, we, we are in a situation where two years ago we started a normalization of the balance sheet and we contracted the reserves and we built this pretty big gap between currency circulation and reserves in the system. And that has become a pressing issue. So as Powell goes ahead and tries to fill that gap, He's going to have to buy these T-bills to do that, right? He's going to have to buy from dealers, right? And then those dealers have new reserves and banks have new reserves. And then there will be another, let's say, conversion effect, if you call it that way, of something happening with those reserves. Why did we end up with this repo issue in, in September? Because a lot of banks had hoarded reserves. Apparently, a few banks held a lot of reserves. So they try to resolve that. But if you then think about what QE actually did, two ways to think about it, right? One is the duration effect. Yes, you buy long-dated securities and you you push people out in the risk spectrum. The other part is that you are providing, let's say, a real cushion to the system. One reason why QE1-2 really happened was to try to really resolve the financial crisis and the liquidity aspects of that and the distress that happened. We don't really deal with that right now, but we do deal with a liquidity issue, so to speak. So, if you cushion the system with a, a, let's say, very safe asset, which is the excess reserves, by driving up the price of the risk-free asset, which is the T-bill, then you will get some sort of idea that people will, will at least respond to that and say, okay, there's a cushioning effect here in the system. I'm going to do something else, right? I'm going to take perhaps more risk or at least some ent- enticement. And this may be the debate, right, where mm. we, we don't debate so much about 
buying 30-year treasury bonds and that's QE, right? But more about what will this program ultimately result into how people will behave as this right. comes to an into The motivations may be different, but the the reaction will be similar in markets. I want to say just to like back up Ben's point to a certain extent, uh, go against myself. What you saw in markets, especially on Tuesday there, was this big twist steepening of the curve. And steepening in a trade like that is typically associated with what we saw right before QE2 in, uh, and following on from that in August of 2010. And again, when we were talking up the possibility of QE3. So essentially, what this is intended on doing, whether it's a problem with anything with the, with the reserves of the system, with bank liquidity, so on and so forth, it's effectively serving as forward guidance, which is pushing short rates down and removing more deflationary tail risk, negative risk asset outcomes. And you saw long bond yields go up. So, hey, if the market thinks it's QE and wants to act like it's QE in a way, who am I to say it's not? I think you just conceded defeat there, Luke. I'm not sure. Is that that's ever, look? We well, want Ben to be a, a three time. Can you can you see the threatening motions that Ben is making at me? <laughs> ben is practicing kung fu in his seat. But I want to ask you then, Luke. I mean, you can make the quip that markets are never wrong. But if you look at the spread between three month Treasury yields and ten year Treasury yields, I mean, we're now back near the vicinity of being in positive territory. I mean, can you make the case then that if this isn't QE, then we're seeing markets act the wrong way? Uh, potentially, I think you can make that point. However, I, I think this week, and I'm sure we'll get to this, it's kind of important to note that this wasn't happening in a vacuum. And in fact, even during Powell on Tuesday, some of the uh, oomph was taken out of his remarks by the fact that you had trade headlines hitting fast and furious and kind of either whipsawing, negating the effect, or in some cases, accelerating it. And what we've seen uh, essentially since that point is more positive than negative trade headlines. And that's a reason why the 10-year yield has kind of risen as dramatically as it has this week. So, Ben, you gave a uh, TV interview uh, to Bloomberg TV earlier this week where you talked about this whole issue and um, how you see the rest of the year shaping out. And we wrote a story on it. The headline was Shades of 2018 Route Coming for Markets This Quarter. Emin says that's that's a scary headline, Ben. But I just wanted to sort of go through your rationale. You don't think um, that this will solve the the repo issue, the the funding issue, as we get towards year end. Um, you say uh, this will take some time to catch up. It may alleviate at some point a bit of the funding pressures that we see, but it will not be by year end. It will be more by the second quarter of next year. So, walk us through a little bit more how you see the rest of the year shaping out. It sounds like uh, you're you're pretty cautious for the fourth quarter. Yeah, I am, uh, Mike, because um, although this is a really good step by the Fed to address it more permanently in a sense, and they still have to, by the way, announce the permanent repo facility. It's not there yet. It may happen in October. We don't know yet. yet but it's like in the air. Um, but most of all, it will, it will take a number of months to ramp it really up, right? They would have to buy at least 100, 200 billion or so of, of, of T-bills to make that difference. Then we're dealing with this redistribution issue of reserves that is still happening. And then we're dealing with just the year-end effect in itself, right? And if you, this is actually what, where I'm coming really from, is that since 2015, when the Basel III agreement made changes to, let's say, leverage that banks can have on their balance sheet, particularly over year-end, there's, there's a lot of constraint on that now. This has actually limited the uh, the ability of companies and others to fund themselves over year end. They have to all go to a really small door, so to speak. 
And we've dealt with this repeatedly. So we're dealing with it this year too. One way to look at it is the technical part of the market is the currency market where you have basis swaps, right? Where you can have uh, swap uh, floating rates with one another. That gives you sort of a sense of demand for dollars in particular. Now, we're also coming off a really uh, tense period in August of flight to safety. There's other signs there that there's been a fair amount of dollar issuance happening in Asia, right? That's, I think, all a rush for having dollars before the end of the year. Uh, there's generally, I think, just a demand for dollars in itself, which has nothing to do with the value of the dollar. It's just demand for dollars. So we, we're in a pretty tight situation. So this program that they're talking about will make some difference, but not immediately. Um, at, in addition, that you, um, if, if you do deal with this constraint in itself, then you're going to get the same sort of, sort of gateway, a really tight gateway to get through. And if we're then dealing with everything that comes ahead of us now, the trade talks, we don't know how it ends, right? So the tariffs that, uh, that come into effect perhaps next week and in December, all the uncertainty, we know the drill of that. So it, it, does, it does keeps us in a really tight environment, and that's the caution that I have. You know, and, and will that be the shades of 2018? Yes, that looks like a bit like that. Um, and that depends, of course, too, on, on other geopolitical developments. But we have a lot of that this time, right? Not to forget what's happening with Turkey, Syria, which is very politically uh, charged. And that also China is involved in that, too. There's all of that political aspect there, too, that markets are in, in a bind here. And to, to piggyback on Ben's point there, like, the Fed is trying to essentially help with the amount of water going through the plumbing here. And, and loosen that up. But the size of the pipes is really what's going to become an issue at the end of Q4. And uh, Bank of America had kind of a recent note uh, talking about just uh, GSIB regulations and the desire of big banks to avoid surcharges on their assets. And that means, you know, essentially slimming down on, on your assets, which obviously has ripple effects uh, beyond in terms of those who need financing or have finance positions currently. And it's kind of same as it ever was. It is shades of 2018 there in that, you know, you see some banks that are right above a level where if they just got below it would be a lower charge for the next year. So that means they have the same incentive to kind of retreat from a mark, the market in the way that they did in Q4 that had people just crying about how bad liquidity was and really seeing a lot of the gaps you got uh, during that time. It really makes you wonder if they shouldn't do, say, average assets over a period rather than... It, does, it doesn't make you wonder. Yeah, it's not how the Basel Agreement works. And ultimately, the Basel Agreement actually is this overlapping agreement that all banks do have to comply with, even though the domestic regulation may be a bit different. It has been an interesting repeating uh, phenomenon over the last four years, 2015, 16, 17, 18, and now, right? So and every time that the tensions get a build up, that year-end effect becomes more severe. So this year, too... We have plenty of reasons to be really cautious. So I am with look that on that debate is that uh, we're going to go through a small door. There's going to be a lot of parties that have to all go through the small door. And whether the Fed is there with this repo operation or not, I don't think that the tightness in the markets will necessarily change as a result. Countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Ben, when you talk about shades of 2018, especially being in the beginning of the fourth quarter, a lot of people will picture the near-death experience of the bull market that we experienced last year. But many would point out the fact that interest rates are much lower, clearly, than where they were back then. How does that change the picture heading into this quarter and then maybe even into 2020 as well? Because as we all know, the fourth quarter was pretty rough, but then we saw a very steep rebound. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point because we're talking here about then the macro reasons of why there's caution that, yes, we have... 100 base points or 200 base points more of lower rates with rate cuts everywhere. There's a lot of focus on to try to avoid the trade war turning into a global recession. So another insurance being put in the system, that's completely opposite from last year, clearly. At that time, we were actually very confident that we had a very strong outlook and it was more about talking about tightening. And in fact, emerging markets in particular, central banks there had, had to tighten because they dealt with pressure on their currencies. So we're really opposite situation on that front. But that all said, like, I think the complexity of the trade war has, has compounded since that time. Right? There's so many layers have been added to it that although not, not, not all of that has been yet really implemented, the market clearly discounting, that's a scenario that makes the economic scenario a lot worse than what we had before, let's say at least six months before you know, the complexity really went up. So I think that, that the year-end situation on that sense is not different than last year in terms of having tension about where we're really heading with trade, Brexit, Gulf tensions, etc., the uncertainty is just much more elevated. And that is not, I think, it's something that low rates have yet to offset. They have not really offset that uncertainty. And if you look kind of at the, the history of the market from you know 2018 to the present, and especially during the risk-off episode, say February 2018, uh, the Volpocalypse and Q4 2018, to be clear, it's it's very evident that these don't appear to be broad macro issues. It does appear as though market structure and liquidity concerns uh, just become the overriding factors. Like we've had over the past couple of years, I'd say we're up about 20% and earnings are up uh, about 20%, but the time periods in which those have occurred are completely divorced from one another. So I think, you know, the kind of stocks follow fundamentals, yeah, over the long haul, but we've seen kind of market conditions uh, play a bigger role, especially in our risk-off episodes. You know, but I wanted to go back to stuff that you mentioned, um, the Turkey invading Syria situation. Um, I know the lira was weak, the Turkish lira was weak, Um is there any other risks from that scenario that we need to think about? Have you seen any sort of contagion in markets elsewhere? Or is it just add on top of the sort of global geopolitical uncertainty that we have all over the place? It's an add on and it will be local and it will be very fact, you know, impact on Turkey itself and obviously the region. And you know, look, in Syria, there's been a war going on for eight years but I think the political angle there was about the the Kurds, right, who hold so many of these ISIS uh, fighters and the subsequent flood of, of, again, of refugees out of Syria coming into Europe. Right? So you have Europe there in place and you have the U.S. focus on this. And obviously, the, 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 let's say the, the criticism on, on, the, on the turn that Trump took on this, on this policy related to Syria 
is is another political angle here. I think that's new. Uh, it won't really impact, let's say, a trade talks or 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 another sort of event. It's just add on. Um, contagion to other uh, local emerging markets is not there, other than if it were the fact that, say, the Turkish banks, again, right, because the lira weakens and the banks uh, get no liquidity anymore, etc., that, you know, there's some banks in Europe that have lent a lot to Turkish banks, and they and Turkish banks are very reliant on dollar funding. So that could be that tension, uh, you know, resurfacing. It's happened before, you know, when Turkish lira was under a lot of pressure and, and Trump had a, had a big skirmish with, uh, with Erdogan. That's, I think, 2017. So maybe something like that. Other than that, I don't think that's broad contagion issue. Well, for, first, like, I... I think, you know, this is probably first and foremost in everyone's mind more a, a moral issue than anything. But when it comes to the potential market impacts, I think one extra way you could see this is some potential read through between this and the possibility of the president being impeached or that impeachment then being successful in the Senate to the extent that matters to markets. Because if there's one thing that several Republican senators have not liked and have been happy to voice their disapproval on this week, uh, Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham uh, in particular come to mind, it's that they very much do not agree with this foreign policy decision. So in as much as the president's constituency right now is, is very dependent upon his party and particularly his party in the Senate, in order to retain control, this is one way in which he perhaps might be undermining his support. Because this has been a topic of late, and we've discussed it on a couple of the past episodes, Ben, let's get your view. I mean, thinking about impeachment and the markets, what is the relationship, if at all? I guess the relationship is not about the fault of, you know, of Treasury debt. I, I want to strongly emphasize that. I don't think that has anything with one another to do, because that would be people's first maybe thinking is that, we're going to get a default or we're getting a, a very weak dollar. Now, neither has happened so far or, or will happen, I think. Um, it will be disruptive, of course, because any political leadership change causes, again, additional uncertainty. It will be here the case, too. If you really think about it, we have not had a political crisis like we've had in Europe, uh, for example, including what's happening with the Brexit. So it will be a really, I think, will first constitutional political crisis that, you know, ultimately, I do think markets will react negatively to, in the sense it is disruption, it's uncertainty. And if you do think back of the Nixon era, uh, when, you know, it wasn't impeached, but he ultimately left the White House, there was a lot of uncertainty after that, right, and, and how things would unfold. So that void would definitely affect markets. But I think that it is a, um, otherwise, it's more of an issue that it will be about the 2020 election, how that shapes out, right? who will be the new Republican frontrunner there, that particularly, I think, and that's more political. I think that would not have impact on markets. I think the only thing you could see about this then is that the dollar would actually ironically continue to strengthen because it's just a flight to safety effect from the uncertainty. Yeah. Interesting. The pound did strengthen uh, quite a bit on Thursday when Boris Johnson and the uh, Irish uh, prime minister met at renewed optimism that maybe they will come to some sort of uh, agreement before the the Brexit drop-dead deadline. What is your read on how that's all going to shape out? I mean, I think the pound went from like $1.22 to above $1.24. Have we seen the lows in the pound, or is there is there danger for a, a big crash if this stuff falls through before the end of the month? So the good news actually is with, with the Brexit, two things actually. One, they passed a law through House of Commons that they could not leave the EU with, without a deal. That's passed. So no matter what happens between now and the end of October, Boris Johnson or someone appointed would have to go to the EU for an extension. 
that's very clear. So we won't get this hard exit. As I said before, the, the Bank of England and the ECB have done some pretty good background work to control the fallout in the derivatives market, so there won't be a financial systemic effect either if there's a Brexit. And that's why markets have always been pretty calm about the Brexit headlines, other than just general uncertainty effect. Um, of course, the pound has upside here. If, if, if it does lead to a resolution, finally the Brexit is behind us. If anything, it's just a relief, right? Like I said, we had three years of this. Um, but the most likely outcome so far still is that um, if you do not leave the, the, the EU on the... Uh, so without a deal on the 31st, uh, then it will be new elections, obviously, that will be happening in November and a number of months you know, during that extension time, new government... That what happened was that uh, Boris Johnson met with the Northern Ireland Irish uh, Prime Minister, and they find a way, I guess, to keep the e- the Northern Ireland into the EU on a certain code, and it's a very technical thing. And that would be then to to the sort of a piece of 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 uh, the gov- not only the government but other opposition parties, except the the Irish D- DUP, they would be against that still. But it would be just enough to actually say, now we can actually have this withdrawal agreement work on the technicalities of the hard border around Northern Ireland, which has been the big block, you know, against that Brexit uh, conclusion. But they say there's still a lot of work to be done. So I would I would be still in the camp of saying we're going to head towards the end of the month with a no-deal exit that leads to, you know, new elections in the UK. And more broadly, stepping back, when you take a look at Thursday's price action, this could be peak policymaker optimism that we've kind of ever seen, at least so far this year. If you can look at a day when cable, the pound against the U.S. dollar, is up about 1.5%, and U.S. stocks with heavy exposure to China are also up 1.5%, those two things don't happen together. We don't <laughs> suspect that global policymakers are going to avoid worst-case scenarios and rally like that on both legs uh, that often. So this that's kind of something to keep in mind going forward. Uh, Thursday's a pretty special day when you look at global markets so far. Everyone yeah, the, just decided to be really optimistic. The, the bias definitely seems to be towards positive outcomes yes. <laughs> all around, which uh, you would think maybe people would have learned their lessons by now or maybe am I just am I too uh, cynical Ben? No you're actually right and I think there's still a lot of caution out there I mean a little move in rates but it's very limited if you actually look at I mean it's a great point by the way by by, uh, Luke to look at those two items that's directly linked to these two, two deals but if you if you look at the ranges, the S and P is still within the August range, right? That where all the stress happened. And the ten years really at a low range. Dollar stronger still. Not much movement there. Gold is up, etc. So there's a lot of caution. Um, you know, it's great that we get optimism. I'm just I think a lot of investors feel this is more of like that's a little bit of liquidity gap there. That optimism. That's why markets move up waiting for this, ultimately, what, what will be the resolution in both cases, which, you know, again, we we don't know. I think you could maybe call the optimism crazy. I think you could. And I think that is a good segue to the craziest things we saw in markets this week. I believe we got a call into the What Goes Up hotline. Is that correct? We did. It's from Gerald, who is actually in Hong Kong, and he's pointing out the fact that all in this week, China announced that it will actually encourage foreign financial institutions and funds to invest in their financial markets. And at that same time, Bloomberg reported further about trying to bar capital flows into China that is out of the U.S. So take a listen. So if I just arrived from Mars, I could be confused which country represents capitalism and free markets. 
and which country is run by authoritarian communists. But then again, these days, Hong Kong itself is a bit like Mars, especially on the weekends. Thanks. Bye. It's a great point. I wonder if these uh, the Chinese officials are eyeing all that NBA money that came into the, the country and and uh, some some good potential investors there, uh, perhaps. Uh, bag holders. Bag- <laughs> yeah. It's pretty unbelievable. Supposedly, uh, Houston Rockets jerseys have just come out of Nike stores in China. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, that, you, who would have thought that's where the tensions would escalate? But uh, well, hopefully, hopefully there's peace on the horizon. All right, Luke, can you beat that craziest thing? I, I think I might be able to, and it's because I think this one I'm really playing to you. I know you kind of like the legal ones, and I'm also playing a bit to Sarah here because I think she might have had a family member that did something along the same lines, except a, a lot less criminality involved. All right, let's I'll see leave, how this I'll goes. Leave, I'll, leave her, to tell, <laughs> I'll leave her to tell that story a little later. So there's a 14-count indictment unsealed against a citizen of Singapore, alleging essentially that he hijacked and did some identity theft with a prominent California video game developer to often open cloud computing accounts so that he would be able to have computing power to mine Bitcoin and Ethereum, apparently about 5 million worth of cloud computing employed here. And at one point, uh, they believe he was actually one of the biggest users of Amazon Web Services by volume at the time, based on how much he was stolen and employing towards this task. So I think that's the that's the craziest thing I've got for you. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So do you buy Amazon then or do you buy uh, I guess Bitcoin. short, short Bitcoin, Bitcoin and buy the uh, buy Amazon? I think I'm going to have to call my brother after this and make sure all is good in the world. Um, he used to mine Bitcoin, and he's a very uh, good ex-professional video game player, so the two might cross. We might have a witness to this, Luke. All right, Ben, that's a tough one to, to beat. Can you top? Uh, I'm not even sure what exactly went on there. Some guy hacked into the cloud and was mining Bitcoin. I'm going to try it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm completely the other way in terms of, like, let's keep to stick to the markets. Let's keep it boring. <laughs> let's Nothing's go, boring. And let's go back to the ECB with their issues, right? As in, so the Financial Times reported that the uh, ECB officials had such a clash with each other about this QE decision. But if you then read the minutes from the ECB, there's nothing of that in there. <laughs> so I thought, this is really crazy. Like, this can't be, right? They, you know, so in other words, there's just the usual European way of communicating with one another, which means, by the way, just like with the Brexit and just like with that situation, there's always what I call the European 25th hour. They get together, they kiss each other literally on the cheek, <laughs> hug each other, and then it will be peace. That's the craziest thing. It's the European way. It sounds like whoever the secretary was that typed those, up those minutes should be promoted to diplomat, I That's think. That's right. <laughs> All right, Sarah, can you beat that? All right, I'm going to rip off the Band-Aid and make sure that we don't have the same one today. Mine is kind of a follow-up on something I've touched on in the past, and that is Treasury Secretary Mnuchin's father with art. Oh, right. Can we get a confirmation that it's not the same? Uh, Not the same. Great. Love it. Um, So the headline in the story is Mnuchin's dad is selling a de Kooning for as much as $35 million. And I know in past times on the show, we talked about this stainless steel bunny that he had purchased on the behalf of hedge fund manager Steve Cohen for about $90 million. Well, this time around, he is selling a painting. It's actually titled untitled 22, which makes me think were there 21 other untitled paintings. <laughs> it's um, like Funk 49 by the James Gang. Yeah, but for $35 million. $35 million. And you don't, you don't even get a title. You don't even get a title. You don't even get a title. Untitled 22. All right. Well, I, I'm going to concede defeat to you because uh, that's pretty good. 
Mine's also from the collectibles market, but I got I got to set it up with a little childhood story. When when I was a young baby, really, uh, you know, one of seven kids, youngest of sevens. Wow. My parents had they drove us all around in this beat up old Volkswagen minibus from the sixties. And there were so many of us in it, like when you'd go up a hill, sometimes some kids would have to get out so that it could make it all the way up. Sounds the like hill. an old sitcom. And the bigger <laughs> kids would push. So a piece of junk car, right? So my brother sends me a link today. A 1960 Volkswagen minibus. Granted, this one's in mint condition. Ben, take a guess on what it's uh, it's it's up for sale for. $100,000? Close. $181,000. Wow. And what's interesting is my childhood house recently went up for sale, and the asking price was only about double of what our childhood car was, apparently. <laughs> so <laughs> tells you something about, you know, buy and hold, what exactly you should be holding. Should have held Always. on to it. Yeah. Should have held on to it. Yes. <laughs> That's on ClassicAutoMall.com. So if any listeners want to buy that, I hope they give me a ride someday. But anyways, leaving it there, Ben Emmons, Lou Kawa, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. up we'll be back next week until then you can find us on the bloomberg terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts we'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on apple podcasts so more listeners can find us and you can find us on twitter follow me at at sarah Ponsek, mike is at Reganonymous, and luke kawa is at lj kawa you can also follow bloomberg podcasts at podcasts what goes up is produced by topher forges the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.